by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is a hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. Is trustworthy. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we also will reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Maybe see you. Amen. Good morning. It is good to be gathered together this morning. It's like this might be the yeah, the first time in a while we have a, a full house in here. We had uh, holidays for a little while and then some, some cold weather, but thankfully the, uh, the heat wave came. We're back up to uh, above freezing and people are, are ready to gather again. So uh, it's, it's good to be with you guys this morning. My name is uh, Carson. It's, a, it's an honor and a joy to get to open the word together with you all. So the, uh, the question I want to start out with as we, as we step into the word this morning is um, it's a heavy one. The question is how many of us in this room at some point have desired to give up on your ministry? Define ministry in a broad sense here, maybe some ministry in the church, maybe some ministry in your home, maybe some uh, ministry to your neighbors or leading a Bible study, but how, how many of you, if you're honest, and we want you to show, you by the, show it by the raise of hands, how many at some point in your life have been tired and discouraged and looked ahead of the ministry in front of you and said, I don't want to do it? Amen. I'll be honest, I've been there too. Many times have uh, looked at the dreams of greener pastures, of how life might be better or easier if I were called to something different. We've been working through the book of 2 Timothy as a church the last couple of weeks and come up to 2 Timothy chapter 2 today. And the way that I read this book, I think Paul thought Timothy was exactly in that point at the occasion of this letter. He was tired, worn down, discouraged. The, the coals of his soul were growing dim. Right? And Paul writes this book and says, Brother, do not quit. There's a way forward. There's a better way to find relief than giving up. That's the heart of this passage that we're going to study together today, 2 Timothy chapter 2. And as we set into this text, a purpose statement for this sermon this morning, the purpose statement is to promote a vision for longevity and vitality in ministry. Together as we are strengthened by grace. To promote a vision for vitality and longevity in ministry going to do that by walking us through two resolves 
two resolves for recipients of grace. So if you have a bulletin in front of you this morning, there's a, uh, an outline of the sermon that might be helpful for you as you're taking notes. Uh, two resolves for recipients of grace. Let me pray for us, and we'll start opening the text. Lord God, thank you for this morning. God, thank you for each soul that is gathered in this room. Lord, we're thankful to your grace towards us that you have not left us on our own, that you have given so freely of yourself to us. Lord, I pray that you would, uh, yeah, you would help me this morning as walk us through this text, God, to, uh, yeah, to speak your word truly and clearly in a way that gives glory to you. And I pray that it would have the effect that your word is intended to, to produce life in our hearts. I pray that your, your spirit would be active among us in this time. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. First question we have to ask this morning is, what exactly is the grace of God? We're used to talking about it. We sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We quote Ephesians 2, 8, that we were saved by grace through faith. But when we come across a passage like this, and the charge is be strengthened by grace, we're forced to stop and ask, what exactly does that mean? How does grace produce strength? Because... If you're like me, that's not the way that we're used to thinking about grace. I think we're used to associating grace primarily with maybe patience, forgiveness. And there's a good reason for that. Patience and forgiveness are absolutely fruits of God's grace. But if we try to take those fruits, forgiveness and patience, and make them the very definition of grace then this passage just won't have near the power that it was intended to. Because here, Paul does not tell Timothy to look to God's grace and find comfort. He doesn't tell him to look to God's grace and find acceptance or assurance. It tells him, Timothy, look to God's grace and find strength. Strength to press on in the ministry that God has given you. Because God's grace is not first about forgiveness. It's not first about patience. God's grace is first about his generosity. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. We'll flash this one up on the screen. It says, This is the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. It's about his generosity. In, in your bulletin, have a definition. The grace of Christ is his generosity to freely give us his riches. God's grace is his inclination to stoop low, to meet us where we are, and to help us to grow. By God's grace in Christ, he forgives us of our sins. And by God's grace in Christ, he gives us everything we need to live a life that gives glory to him. He gives us righteousness. He gives us his presence. He gives us his power. He gives us himself. 
Maybe you're familiar with Romans chapter 6. And this is the, the very argument that Paul is making there when he's asked if people who are saved by grace just go on to live lives in sin. He says, by no means. That's a complete misunderstanding of grace. How can we who died to sin go on and live with it? This is the same idea that helps us to understand passages in the New Testament. And there are many of them where grace is described as a resource to be drawn upon, to be stewarded in ministry. I'm going to put a few of these up on the screen. Romans chapter 12, verse 6. It says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Then it goes on to describe some of the, the gifts uh, for ministry. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. Uh, Ephesians is a book that's rich with theology of grace. And in that book it says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And flowing down from that, it talks about the different giftings for ministry and how they're all given to build up the body of Christ into the fullness of of his image. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 and 11 says, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. So we're going to circle back around to this later in the sermon and talk about what it means and how exactly to be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. But for now, we'll keep flowing with the, the movement of the text because Paul quickly moves on to the direction that Timothy ought to keep moving in ministry. Right? Verses 1 and 2 work together as a, as a two-part charge. Read that with me. Verse 1 says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And... What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. All right, this is where Timothy or Paul starts speaking into Timothy's resolves. And this is the first of the two that's in your bulletin. Because we are recipients of grace, we should share in Christ's sufferings. Because we're recipients of grace, we should share in Christ's sufferings. You can take this from verses 3 through 7. The way I understand this passage is that it's a, a two-part command right here at the top, verses 1 and 2. So there's an A and B that are given together. Be strengthened by the grace and, and trust the gospel on to faithful men who will teach others also. So part A and part B, you've got dependence on the grace and strength that's in Christ Jesus and a direction. You've got dependence and direction. But then the rest of the passage, verse 3 through 7, it goes on to describe part B, really. The direction that Timothy's supposed to go. And then after that, verses 8 through 13, he circles around to the first idea, part A. And he says, this is how you can be strengthened by the grace. All right, so... I say that to say that when we move between verses 2 and verse 3, and he says, share in the suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus, that he's not moving on to a new idea. When he says share in suffering, he's talking about the kinds of suffering which would stop if Timothy only gave up on his calling. And what was his calling? 
Timothy, entrust these things that you've heard from me on to faithful men who will teach others also. And Timothy, as you do that, embrace any suffering that faithfulness to this calling incurs. The phrase, as a good soldier, in verse 3, speaks of the mentality that's necessary to live with this resolve. It's interesting, in the three illustrations that follow, only one of them keeps the, the picture of the soldier. But each of them work together to push the same point. Share in suffering with Christ. And then each of these three illustrations in the verses that follow bring a different aspect of that mentality into view. So, so in verse 4, it, it gives the first of these. And it says, like a good soldier. Suffer like a good soldier. Read that with me. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Here he's speaking about the necessity to have single-minded devotion. Single-minded devotion. It says, be like a soldier who does not get entangled in civilian pursuits, but be totally devoted to the initiative of your commanding officer. So I've never been in the military before myself, but used to work up at Fort Leavenworth Military Base for a while. And it was notable to me how frequently military families moved on and off the base. When you live in that lifestyle, you've really got to be ready to pick up roots and move anywhere at a moment's notice. Because of your loyalty to your commanding officers, really every other commitment is quite secondary. He says, this is the same mentality that's needed for followers of Christ. If you're going to be devoted to the calling of Christ on your life, every other commitment has to be quite secondary. Make sure that you're devoted to the work of Christ and available for him when duty calls. Because how easy is it for us to get entangled in civilian pursuits? I think there's really two ways we can go wrong here. One is to be like a soldier who devalues the demands of battle and he decides to take up other affairs instead. One who devalues the demands of battle and decides to take up other commands instead. There are some who hear the calling of Christ and respond with indifference. They're indifferent to the cause of the advancement of the gospel and the glory of Christ's name. And they choose to live for nothing of significance instead. Right? If we spend more time watching cat videos on YouTube than serving others, it should be indicative that our heart has a problem. So one way to go wrong is to devalue the demands of battle and take up other affairs instead. But the other way that we can go wrong on this is to underestimate the demands of battle and take up other affairs as well. I think there's a word for us here. 
Overcommitment is not spiritual. Busyness is not a sign of godliness. The call of Christ is not to be a high achiever, but to be wholly available. I think we have to be careful when we read passages like these to see that Christ's call in our life is not to do more. It's to do well. And it's totally different. Notice in the charge in verse 2. I think most often when I've heard verse 2 taught, and trust these words to faithful men who will be able to teach others also, it's just taught... to be this quickly spiraling how we're going to take the world by storm in about three weeks. right? This is the pathway to do it. And that's really not what, what he's saying. He's actually helping Timothy to dial in his sense of responsibility. To narrow his focus. Saying, Timothy, your calling is not to personally disciple and be everything to everyone. Your job is to entrust these words to a few faithful men who will take up the mantle of responsibility with you and be a team. Don't overcommit and miss the right thing. You only have to do your job, but Timothy, your job is essential. Listen, this one truly hits home for me. But if you're often anxious that you cannot do everything you feel responsible for, there's some things on your list of responsibilities that God did not put there. I'll say that again. If you often feel anxious that you cannot do everything you feel responsible for, there are likely some things on your list of responsibilities that God did not put there. Civilian affairs are not inherently sinful. They're just extra. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus calls. He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Then he says, Take my yoke upon you. A yoke is, a, is an instrument for work. You put it over the, the neck of a, of a cow or an oxen, some other work animal, and you put it to work. So he says, come to me, I will give you rest. And then he says, let me put this work on your shoulders. He says, trust me though, I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. Our Savior is indeed gentle and lowly. But brothers and sisters, for any faithful Christian servant, there is another master who stands close by who is wicked and deceitful, and his name is prideful ambition. And if you offer him your service, he will run your soul into the ground. Be careful. It's so easy in our ambition to commit to more than we ought to. 
to engage in civilian affairs that were not actually handed down to us from our commanding officer. To cause ourselves some extracurricular suffering. Listen, CBC, so many guys in this room have amazing hearts to serve. Praise God for that. It's one of my favorite parts of being a part of this church. And please hear this. If at any point you find yourself growing weary in the soul by the responsibilities that you carry, please do not assume that just pressing on is what Jesus requires of you. He's really not a harsh master. He is gentle and lowly. He will lead you into real rest if you are faithful to him. So that's the first illustration here. It's the illustration of a soldier. It says you must have the mind, the single-mindedness of a soldier. The second illustration he uses is that of an athlete. Speaks of an athlete's commitment to compete according to the rules. Read verse 5 with me. He says, An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. To compete according to the rules is to live with moral integrity. This instruction will become pronounced a little later on in the book, so I won't take too much time for it this morning. But the basic charge here is to not let sinful behavior cause any reason for disqualification or dishonor to the name of Christ. This is another way that we can bring extra suffering on ourselves. To live a life that does not compete according to the rules. Bring this back around to to Timothy's uh, simple charge in in verse 2. Well, St. Timothy, if you're going to carry out this ministry well of discipling others, raising up leaders, and trusting them with the ministry of the gospel, you cannot do that well if your life brings disrepute to the name of Christ. This is, also explains the reason that Paul tells Timothy, focus on entrusting this gospel to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The word able here is not really concerned with competency, and it's not really about their opportunity or platform. It's about their character. For for reference, this is the same word that John the Baptist uses when he compares himself to Jesus. He says, one who is coming, whose strap on his sandal, I'm not even worthy to untie. That word worthy that's used there is the same word here as able. Almost every time this word comes through in the New Testament, it's translated as worthy or fit or qualified. Invest in those who will be fit to teach. Invest in those who will live a lifestyle that competes according to the rules and is consistent with the message of the gospel. So we've got these two things. The mentality of one who suffers with Christ is that of one of single-minded devotion, and of moral integrity. And finally, he ties these illustrations together with the picture of a farmer. He says, even at the bottom of it, 
Faithfulness requires simple, hard work. Read with me verse 6. It says, It is the hard-working farmer, the hard-working farmer, who ought to have the first share of the crops. One note that's interesting, in the previous two illustrations, there's some kind of opposition that's part of the picture. Right? The soldier faces an enemy army. The athlete has other athletes that are competing against him. When you get to the picture of the farmer, like there's no other people that are causing him problems. It's just him and the natural elements and his own flesh. I think this is to show us, maybe in part, that being faithful to your calling always requires the suffering of discipline. It always requires discipline. Even if you've perfectly aligned your commitments and you're committed to only the right things, even if you live according to the rules and live a perfectly honorable life, Christians will still have a cross to carry. And we know this. We know that a life that lacks discipline is not actually restful. We know that a life that does not have meaningful responsibility is not restful. So the rest that Christ has called us into is not the absence of work. It's the absence of anxiety. So when Christ calls and he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. He's not inviting you into laziness. He's inviting you into peace. The picture here is of a good farmer who disciplines himself and for the joy of the harvest set before him wakes up early day after day after day and puts his hand to the plow until he sees the fruit of his labors. Have you thought about how fear is the great immobilizer? Fear, anxiety. I think those days where I'm, I'm feeling most weary in the soul, it's not actually just because I've had a long schedule. I say that. I'm just tired. But that's not it. It's fear. Fear that I'm not going to have what it takes to reach the finish line. Fear that when I get there, I'll still just be met with an empty feeling or criticism or condemnation. Fear that when it's all said and done, I'll look back and think, it wasn't worth it. That's where the desire to quit comes from. It's from fear. And that's why Paul is given in this, this encouragement. He says, Timothy, quitting on your responsibility will not give you what it promises. Do not quit. Giving up on your responsibilities is not the way to find rest. In each of these illustrations, it's the future reward that drives us onward and motivates our effort. It's the pleasure of the commanding officer. It's the crown of victory. It's the share in the harvest. And it's this assurance of future reward that drives the resolve that whatever suffering is incurred by our faithfulness to Christ, it'll be worth it. We will share in the sufferings of Christ so long as we believe that it is worth it. 
So this is a resolve. That as recipients of grace, we will share in his suffering, believing that it's worth it and believing that it's possible. And this is what takes us down to the second resolve. The second is this, that because we are recipients of grace, we will stand in his strength. We will stand in his strength. Remember where this passage began in verse 1. It says, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Paul took a few moments there to charge Timothy to continually faithfully suffering in Christ. But here in verse 8, he's going to circle back around to his original idea. And the question that verses 8 through 13 answer is how does one draw strength? From Christ's grace. Let's read those together. Starting in verse 8, it says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. In these verses, Paul is saying, Timothy, here is how you do it. Here is how you press on when ministry is hard. Remember Jesus Christ. Call to mind the evidence of his power. Remember the fulfillment of his promises. Remember that feeling you had when you saw the way that he was the one that fulfilled the scriptures from beginning to end. Remember that he is raised from the dead. Remember the gospel. The gospel message is that God in his grace sent his own son from heaven to earth to step down into darkness, the darkness of our world, to dwell among us. And he did not just come to dwell among us. He came to die among us so that by his generosity, he might freely forgive our sins. And having died, Christ raised from the dead and ascended on high so that he might send his spirit to dwell in all who will receive him by faith. So that all who come to him for salvation might be clothed in the righteousness of God and be able to live a new and transformed life with his power, which resounds to the glory of God to the ends of the earth and for all eternity. He says, don't lose hold of that. The grace of God does not just move us from guilty to forgiven. The grace of God moves us from stuck in our sin to a sincere representation of the glory of God. Timothy, remember the gospel. Remember that God's grace is greater than any of your circumstances. 
We don't know exactly what Timothy's circumstances looked like in this time, but we're pretty sure that Paul's were worse. At the time of this writing, Paul was bound in chains. He says the word of God isn't bound. Let me be honest with you guys. I get so quickly frustrated and discouraged when I'm faced with my own limitations. Like, whenever I've got an hour and a half block of time that I don't feel like I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, I hit the end of a work day and don't think I've accomplished what I was supposed to. It's tough. And here is Paul, bound in chains. And this guy has the goal to say, you can bind me up, but the word of God is not bound. My God is not limited by me. I'm peaceful. The rest that God provides is not the absence of work. It's the absence of anxiety. This is the nature of spiritual strength that presses us onward. The next sentence is a little bit tricky. But Paul is saying here in, uh, in verse 10, let me read it. It says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So there's a, uh, a few words that make this sentence a little tricky to understand. The first is salvation. Because most of us, when we hear the word salvation, we probably immediately fill in the idea of justification. Right? And justification is that dividing line. Whether when you stand before God, you're guilty or innocent. Whether you go to hell or heaven. Probably what we first fill in when we hear the word salvation. And if we run with that, it seems like what Paul would be saying here is that he doubts all of the elect, all of the people that are chosen by God are actually going to end up in heaven. And it just doesn't seem to fit. So as we're trying to make sense of this, another option we could use is to, to push on that word elect and say maybe this is talking about people that are not yet Christians, are not yet saved, but God knows that they will be. And so Paul presses onward so that, so that they might go to heaven. Those people that will be saved, but they're not there yet. And I guess maybe that one's possible. But what I'm inclined to do with this verse here is to push our understanding of the word salvation. And maybe plug in something like what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. There when he is describing salvation, he says, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. Closely associated with the idea of election. He predestined. Those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the first mortal of many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. There it is. Forgiven of their sin. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So the, the way that I take this sentence is that Paul's saying, I give my everything to help you, Timothy, and all the elect 
know what it is to stand in the salvation of Christ. To know what it is to be conformed into his image. To know what it is to be on the way to glory. And if we take that understanding of salvation here, then maybe what he's saying in this passage would be really similar to what he says in Colossians chapter 1. At the end of Colossians chapter 1, Paul says this. Verse 24, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what's lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of the body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. You see the similar themes, right? He's saying, this is what I'm working for. I'm suffering. I'm bound in chains. But this is what drives me onward. That everyone is in Christ. Everyone who is elect would know this. Christ is in you, and Christ is the hope of glory. And as you take hold of this, that you would be raised up into maturity. I think if that's, that fits, it'll change the way we read 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. It says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, including you, Timothy that they also may obtain, they might take hold of, that they might realize the greatness of salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Here I'm asking, what's the nature of your salvation, Timothy? What's the nature of the, the spirit that's in you? Paul talked about this earlier in the letter. Chapter 1, verse 7, he says, for God gave us a spirit not of a spirit not of what? Fear. A spirit not of fear, but of power. Timothy, the nature of your salvation, the nature of the spirit that is in you, is not one of fear, but it's of power. The spirit that we have within us, brothers and sisters. The grace of God is in our life should never leave us in fear. But it should produce spiritual power. Hear what Paul's saying. And I'm stuck in chains here. But even then, I don't experience an ounce of anxiety. I'm not worried that I'm going to get to that day and God tell me that I didn't do enough. No. The word of God's not bound. I'm a recipient of grace. The grace of God who has poured out his riches on us. And so I stand here as a chained criminal full of power. 
Man, I wish. I wish I could live day in and day out with that kind of light in my eyes. And I pray that you all would too. This is the grace of God. Brothers and sisters, as you take up the yoke of Christ, as you pour out yourselves for ministry, you are not alone. The nature of a yoke is that it really would be two animals underneath it. And I think the picture is, is that you strive along, plod along in the work that God has given you. Serving in the church, serving your family, trying to reach your neighbors, whatever it would be that God has put on your plate. That as you're plodding along in that, you would look over and see Christ in the yoke right beside you. He says, I'm not the kind that's up high that's going to dump all the weight on you. I am gentle and lowly. I'm going to take the bulk of the load here. Depend on his grace and his strength. And don't change your direction. Because to change your direction will put yourself at tension with him. And you lose all the benefits. So take his easy yoke and wear it. His love will make your obedience sweet. Christ will give you the strength to bear it as his grace will guide your feet safe to glory. We've got a spirit not of fear, but of power. And power that works itself out, namely through love and self-control. Power that enables us to live lives of love that are poured out for others. And power that enables us to discipline ourselves and live lives of self-control. Dependence and direction. It is worth it and it is possible by God's grace. Paul closes this passage with a hymn. Some scholars suggested it was likely Paul himself that wrote this hymn. And I don't know, that just puts a really sweet picture in my mind. Just picturing Paul walking along doing his work singing, singing this song. As we read it, listen to the themes. It's worth it and it is possible. Starting in verse 11, it says, The saying is trustworthy for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. It is worth it. If we endure, we will also reign with him. It is worth it. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Brothers and sisters, the result depends ultimately on his character. And it's worked out through your faithfulness. It says he remains faithful because he cannot, he will not deny himself. In your weakness, you might be tempted to give up. You might be tempted to deny the name of Christ, but he will never deny himself. Christ will be always faithful, always reliable, always fulfilling his promises. His grace is never changing, never failing always secure and always stable. The riches of Christ have been secured and are available to you if you will walk with him by faith. So be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus.
we wrap up, I just want to leave us with a question. This will be our, uh, our growth question for the week. It's printed in your bulletin. I want to encourage you to take some time to, uh, to think about this and be ready to discuss it when we gather together on Wednesday night. This is the question. On a scale of 1 to 10, what is your normal level of peace as it relates to your ministry efforts? Again, define ministry however, however it seems to fit there, whether it be a role within the church, a role within your home, some other role of ministry that God has given you. On a scale of 1 to 10, how much peace do you normally experience? And then explain your answer. Just as you process that and think through the rationale behind your answer, I want to give us a few extra areas to think through. To experience peace in your ministry, <coughs> I think you have to know at least these things. Number one, you have to know your purpose. We don't really get to choose this as followers of Christ. It's, it's given for us. But you have to know it. You have to know your purpose. What is the purpose of your life as a follower of Christ? What are the instructions of your commanding officer? So you have to know your purpose. Number two, you have to know your calling. Now we can kind of float around with our definition of the words, but when I'm saying it here, when I think of calling, I think of the roles that God has given you in your life today. Are you a student? Are you an employee? Are you a parent? A spouse? All right, what are your roles? What are the, the entrustments that Christ has called you into? Know your purpose, know your calling. Third, know your capacity. This is going to vary from season to season, depending on the circumstances of your life. It's influenced by a number of factors. But similar to how Paul identified that I'm in chains right now, my capacity is a bit limited. It's faithful for us to be able to do the same thing. And if we're going to experience peace in ministry, we have to have a healthy understanding of our own limitations. <laughs> so know our purpose, know our calling, know your capacity. Fourth, you've got to know the exponential power of Christ. Draw on this one from up in verse 2. All right. That says, do not despise the day of small things possible that Timothy could hear, invest just in a few faithful men and feel like, I think I need something bigger than that. But that's why Paul draws the line down to the next generation. He says, look at the exponential power of Christ. It's a long-term investment and the work might feel slow right now, but it pays a long-term reward. Listen, if you're a parent with kids at home, Know the exponential power of Christ. That the investment you're putting in right now might not show quick reward, but it'll show a big one in the long term by the grace of God. If you're in a discipleship relationship and it feels like, man, we're really stuck in the weeds and I just don't feel like this is moving fast enough, don't give up. Know the exponential power of Christ and that God's grace works generationally. 
Paul draws the line and says, invest these things in a few faithful men and you will be amazed at what he can do with their lives too. So know your purpose, know your calling, know your capacity. Fourth, know the exponential power of Christ. Fifth, know that you are not alone. Christ is with you. Christ is in you. Christ will give you everything you need for life and godliness by the nature of his grace. Finally, this is the last one I'm going to say. Number six, know your labor is not in vain. While our work depends on the grace of God and it's empowered by the Spirit of God, if you give up, there will be real consequences. Your faithfulness matters. I think this might be the other reason that Paul draws out the generations in verse 2. Saying, look, Timothy, if you quit on the guys that are under your discipleship, realize it's not just going to affect you, it's not just going to affect them, but it's going to affect others also. Your faithfulness matters and your labor is not in vain. It's significant. So do not give up. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us to know the depths of your grace. God, that you would help us to sincerely abide in you. God, that we would know you in the fellowship of your sufferings and the power of your resurrection. Lord, I pray for each of us that are members here at CBC, for those who are visitors here among us, Lord. God, that you would help us to to come close to your side. We would trust you. We would know that you are gentle and lowly. Lord, we'd be willing to follow your lead, to take up your easy yoke and wear it. God, I pray for each one in this room as a follower of Christ that you would Preserve each one. Hold their every step, God, and take them safe to glory. God, I pray that you give us wisdom to work out how to engage in ministry, how to follow you and give our lives in love and self-control and do it with peace and strength that only you provide. We know that we need you, Lord. Every hour we need you. Praise these things in Jesus' name. Amen.